Our sermon this morning will be based on Matthew 4, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, that's found on page uh, 809 in, in the Bibles there in the racks uh, beneath the chairs. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on the other on, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Shall you serve? Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Morning. Again, my name is Brian Sorgan Fry, and glad that you're here uh, as we open God's word. We are walking through the gospel of Matthew together, and Matthew's claiming that Jesus is this world-awaited hero that is going to clean everything that's dirty. He's going to fix everything that's broken. He's going to bring justice to an unjust world, and he's going to save his people from sins. He is the Savior, the hero. But even as you hear that word hero, I don't know how it lands with you, but go with me on uh, the, uh, the Disney classic Lion King and think about the scenario that gets set up there. You have a evil king, Scar, that takes over Pride Rock, and when he takes over Pride Rock, it means his priorities rule the day. You have darkness, you have death, you have violence, you have might makes right, and, and you have a land that is essentially captivated in that. And then off in the wilderness, you have Simba, the true king, who is living a, kind of a Hakuna Matata life or whatever. And the, the turning point becomes when Simba, this lion, his friend Nala shows up and starts telling him about Pride Rock starts telling about how the kingdom is falling apart in darkness and, and, uh, and violence. And she looks at him and says, you, you have to come back. And you have to do something about Scar. Because we all know this. If there is a place that is, ca- that is captivated in darkness, the only way to rescue and to save that place is to conquer the source of it. Which in Lion King meant conquering Scar. But in the true story of this world... And the way the scripture sees this world, the source of darkness, the one who has captivated this world, the villain, his name is Satan or the devil or the accuser. He's got a lot of different names. And what we're going to see is that the only way that this world can be saved is the source of that has to be conquered. And so Jesus begins to take him on here in Matthew 4, uh, what Johnny read. So three things this morning, the reality of the enemy, the workings of the enemy, and then the defeat of the enemy. So the reality, the workings, the defeat, uh, 
you're going to hear a lot of kind of Tim Keller and Ricky Jones throughout here. I want to give them credit. They were very helpful in this. Uh, First, the reality of the enemy. Verse 1, we're told that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which means Jesus is going where he's supposed to go. And he's he's being led to square off with this age-old enemy called the devil. Uh, We're going to talk more about that name. But um, I want to stop there and say, I, I don't know how hearing the word the devil strikes you. But the teaching of Scripture is really clear about this, that there's always, going, there's always more going on in the world than simply what your physical eyes can see and what you can touch. Scripture says there's a very present and real spiritual realm that is interacting with the visible world that we know and inhabit. And the, that spiritual realm has a kind of captain, if you want to put it that way, uh, the spiritual intelligence who's dark and he's called the devil and he hates God. He hates God's good world. He hates anything that reflects God and he's here to kill and destroy. And look, for some of you this morning, I don't know how it lands with you hearing, a, hearing a, you know, someone talk about the devil or spiritual force of darkness. Some of you grew up with this and might be very comfortable with that. Some of you here this morning might be kind of trying to figure out Christianity and you think it sounds silly that somebody in 2023 would be talking about the devil in a highly educated town like Oxford. But what I would ask you to consider if that's where you are is, what is your explanation for the evil and brokenness in this world? Like, how do you explain it? Because what I would submit to you is that the Bible actually has an incredibly multidimensional, complex view of how sin and evil and darkness work in this world. It will not just, just throw it through one simple prism. I think that's what actually most of our culture wants to do. Maybe previous generations, that the thing that it kind of focused on was that darkness and sin and evil come into this world because of individual choices, choices that you make. And the Bible isn't saying it's less than that. Of course, it's involved in that, but it's saying yes and more. And really kind of the generation that's coming up uh, is saying, well, evil and sin, they're not so much connected to personal choices, it's kind of institutions and systematic things and and the way the world is set up, that's what kind of brings uh, evil into this world. And the Bible says yes to that as well, but not only that. The Bible is saying there's so much more. So just just consider, consider something like, um, consider something like the sex trafficking industry in the world, multi-million dollar industry. How do you explain that? How do you explain the pervasiveness of that kind of evil? Are you going to say it's simply a matter of personal choices of lust, power, and economics at an individual and systematic level? Yes, it is that. Or would you consider there's something else at work? There's an evil power behind that that hates the image of God, that hates everything good that God made, including sex and the body, and is working to distort it. That's what Scripture says. It's all of those. Or think about, um, think about kind of the, dis- the self-destructive nature of addictions and substances. It even produces death on our campuses. Are you simply going to reduce it down and say, well, it's just a matter of chemicals in the brain and personal choices? Yes, that does happen. The scriptures say there's actually much more at work. To think that way is actually naive. There is, there is an evil, there's a malevolent force that is wanting to destroy and to bring addiction. And he's at work. And so look, 
I'm actually old enough. I don't get to say this much. I'm old enough that uh, I can remember the 80s and the 90s, which I think if my memory is right, kind of comes along on the heels of the scientific revolution, right? Where everybody's saying things can be explained by what you can put under a microscope, which meant the 80s and the 90s were kind of on the cusp of where saying like thinking that there are like spiritual forces of evil out there in this world, that's kind of silly. That was kind of the 80s and 90s. Well, what was interesting is kind of in the 90s and the 2000s, it's as if the writers of Hollywood, who always want to make money, looked around and realized, I think people still think there's spiritual forces out there. I think there's something more going on. And so like in the 90s, this movie called The Blair Witch Project came out, which is kind of the first one that started showing uh, darkness and evil as this real present reality to be scared of. And then you kind of had like the Dark Knight trilogy where you had evil took on a face on the Joker that like his, who defied logic, who just wanted to create chaos and wanted to exploit weakness and destroy. And that makes tons of money. And then you have shows like Stranger Things, which very interestingly explore that maybe there is this spiritual realm that's behind this visible realm that kind of influences and impacts it. And all these things are gaining traction. Could it be that Hollywood and the writers realized like, hey, denying there's a spiritual world, that doesn't fit with reality. There's something bigger going on out there. There's a real spiritual evil that's at work in this world behind the scenes manipulating. And according to scripture, the, the chief architect of that is the devil. And he hates life and he hates what is good and he hates what's made in God's image. And what he wants for you is to doubt who you are Doubt you're made in God's image. Doubt that if you trust Christ that you belong to him because he wants to lead us on the path of death. And so Jesus gets brought into the, into the wilderness to face that age-old enemy, the devil. Because the only way that this world is going to be rescued is if the source of that, the devil, is defeated. So that's first with the reality of evil. Second, you got to see the context of where, where Jesus' battle with Satan uh, happens. All the gospel writers put it right after, right after Jesus gets baptized. And what's interesting is the only way that the disciples, right, most of the events in the New Testament, the disciples were eyewitnesses to, not this one. Jesus was in isolation. So Jesus must have told the disciples about this. He must have, he must have known this was central to his mission and they needed to know what happened out in the wilderness. And it happens right after his baptism, it happens right after he is visibly united with his people in baptism and an audible voice of the Father says, you are my beloved son and who I'm well pleased. So it's right after that, right after the moment where Jesus is assured and publicly declared of his identity as the son of God and whom the Father is well pleased that he then goes into a wilderness and is opposed and tempted and goes through struggle. So here's my question. If, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, if that's your claim, is that your expectation? Do you expect nearness to Jesus? Do you expect growth in the Christian life? Do you expect spiritually doing well, whatever, however, whatever language you're going to use? Do you expect that to involve temptation, struggle, and suffering? Or do you imagine spiritual growth coming out of a place of comfort and ease and having it all together? Because Jesus, who was always living before the Father's smile, when he was reassured of that identity, he immediately went into temptation. And we think about this. Think about the way the human body works. 
if a, if a uh, bacteria or a virus invades your body and you're alive and your immune system's alive, then there's a response, there's a fever, there's things that fight back. If something doesn't fight back, there's something seriously wrong with you. But the struggle is signs that your body is alive. And part of what it means to become a Christian is that you are new, you're alive. You're alive to new realities that you used to not be alive to. You, you are fundamentally a new creation. And that means rather than there being no conflict, no struggle, no temptation, now it's begun. And so Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if there's never conflict inside or outside of you, it's because you aren't led by the Spirit. It's because you're not attempting to follow Jesus in all of life. But when you attempt to follow Jesus in all of life, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be temptation. So anybody who offers you a Christianity without struggle, a Christianity without tears, a Christianity without temptation, and a lifelong battle with the devil and sin is offering you a lie. Because one theologian said this, the voice of the heavenly father who says, I love you and I'm well pleased with you is always followed by a voice from hell saying, I want to get you. They always go together. And that is why it can be so discouraging unless you remember this, because the, the places of joy in your life, like family and work or whatever, are also the places of struggle. They're also the places of temptation because Satan hates those things. But do you have that kind of in, in your back pocket as an expectation of what life will be like? First, that's the reality of evil. Second, how, enemy, how the enemy works. Look, there are some things that are unique about this to Jesus because he is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, and he is saving us from Satan. But there are some things that are actually, that, are, uh, that Jesus walks through in this temptation that are also true of all of his followers. And that's the one I want to look at right here. Because I want you to see that the way that Satan tempts Jesus is at the heart the same way that he's going to tempt you and I. And he goes at your identity. Okay, don't forget, Jesus just comes out of his baptism. He has just been reminded that his fundamental identity is he is the beloved son of God and who the father is well pleased. That's who he is. Okay, but the word devil, it comes from the Greek word diablos. Diablo literally means to split. And that'll tell you something. What the devil tries to do is to split you from your core identity. And so when the devil approaches the, the son of God, did you see what he said? He said, well, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, would you really be hungry? If you're the son of God, would you really be out of this place, this place in suffering? He starts going at the core of Jesus' identity and questioning that and pointing him to the circumstances around him and saying, I don't think you're the son of God. Your life wouldn't look like this. Or if you're starting to doubt, go, go do something amazing. Go jump off this temple and then, and then it'll prove to the world that you really are who the father says that you, are, that you are. So what the devil is trying to do is to get his voice of doubt, his voice of accusation. He's trying to get that voice louder in Jesus' head than the Father's voice that says, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's how temptation works underneath the surface. So I heard this story about a workshop who was <clears throat> set up for this lady who uh, had become a CEO of kind of a, she's a new CEO of this kind of big company. And so the workshop that they set up with her, is they, they, they put her in a chair surrounded by a bunch of other chairs and they asked different people to sit on them and take on different roles. 
and they assigned a role of all these people in her life. And when he started the clock, they all started shouting their needs at her. And so one person was playing the role of, of her kids, and she, and she would say, Mom, Mom, I have soccer practice tonight. I need a ride. I need lunch tomorrow. And then on his left was somebody playing the role of a husband who would say, Hey, sweetie, uh, we haven't seen each other in a while. We need to talk tonight. We need to talk through some things. And then in front of her would be kind of a, uh, played the part of work that was looking at her saying, there's a deadline coming. You got to nail this board meeting. If you don't nail it, uh, you're going to be a joke of the CEO. And all these voices were coming at her at once. It was powerful. Because, because what, what this workshop was doing was saying, hey, look, when you're CEO, you got to realize all these voices are competing for your allegiance. But you got to know who you are. Consider that image. Again, there's a specific identity of Jesus that we're going to come back and talk about. But the way that temptation worked in a sin, tried to go after Jesus, the God-man, is to question, are you really the Son of God? And try to get that voice loud. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've received him by faith, baptized into him, your core identity is you're in Christ, which means your identity is you're loved by the Father. His smile is upon you, not because you and I are good, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And what's going to happen is you're going to be bombarded with all these voices that try to, that try to kind of get at your identity. There are going to be voices that say like, you, you think you're in Christ? Look how lonely you are. If, if you were less lonely, then you would really know that you're a child of God. But not now. You shouldn't be lonely if you're in college, if you're a child of God. You shouldn't be lonely if you're middle-aged and a child of God. Maybe if you'd make some friends, then you could really know that you're his. See how it's getting at the core of your identity? Looking away from yourself to Jesus, being in him? Our voices are going to come at you and say things like, you can't be a child of God and be depressed. That wouldn't be true of you if you were, if you were loved by him. So look, if you were just more successful or you were a better mom or if you had it together more, then maybe you could be assured that you're a child of God. But not now, not how it is. Trying, trying to uproot it. Or voices will come in your head that say, if you're a child of God, there's no way you would struggle with whatever it is. Whatever's going on with you that causes shame, Satan's going to make it sound like there's no way you can be a child of God and struggle with that. And those voices are strong. They're, if you use the word, they're satanic because they're trying to convince you that your identity is bound up in how you're doing or how successful you've been or how much you've failed. It's trying to keep you from looking at your real identity, which is in the Father, in his love for you, because you're covered in Christ. It's trying to drown out the Father's voice that says you're mine. Why does Satan, why does the devil try to split your identity? Because you always live out of who you are and who you belong to. And on the, in those moments when you actually are in, realize that I'm in Christ and I'm resting in the Father's love and there's nothing else I have to do to make him love me anymore because Jesus has done it, that's the place of contentment. That's the place of peace. That's the place where gentleness and love and humility flow out of. But see... If the identity is bound up in me, or if I start doubting the love's father of me, if I start thinking I'm the only person who looks out for me, then you know what flows out of that? Greed, envy, violence, bitterness. That's why he tries to get at your identity, because it's out of who you are flows all kinds of stuff. 
And so his temptation is he tries to strike at the heart of Jesus' identity that he's just been assured of. And if you follow him, he will try to do the same. He'll try to split you from what is fundamentally true of you. So, where's the hope, right? Well, there is, a, there is an enemy that gets defeated. You get, you get a kind of a glimpse of it, of what happens here with Jesus. Remember, I said there's some things that are unique in the struggle that Jesus has that's not true of us, and this is one of them. Because the ultimate key to defeating Satan and the devil is to see what is unique about Jesus and his temptation. So I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I, I grew up thinking when I heard that Jesus was tempted and suffered, I was like, I mean, what's the big deal? He's God. It can't be that bad. Is it really that hard? But I want you to see this because the heart of what's going on here, the truth is that Jesus is fully God, but he took on a human body and he's fully human at the same time. Fully God, fully human in one person. Which means when he fasts for 40 days, he is experiencing real hunger, real suffering. He really is a finite creature in one place who is dependent on food and he has not eaten. And what's happening out in the wilderness is actually a recapitulation of what happens in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Because Adam, who's the first man, is in a place where he's living under God's smile. He knows he's loved and blessed by, by the Father. And what he was supposed to do is to trust God's word and trust God's smile and resist the temptation from Satan. But Satan shows up in the garden as a serpent. And you know what the temptation is? You know, there's no way you're a child of God. If you, were, if you were a child of God, he wouldn't have withheld this tree from you. He's holding out on you. Go get the tree. Get what's yours. And Adam fails. He distrusts the smile of God. And because of his failure, all sin, all brokenness, all death come into this world. And we inherit the world of Adam. And we add to it ourselves. Adam was our representative. But here's what's unique about Jesus. He's the second Adam. Yes, he's God, but he's fully human. And he's now facing off against that age-old villain again, not in a garden, not in a place of abundance, but in a place of wilderness, a place of decay. And this is the hero that we're banking on to heal everything that's broken, to clean everything that's dirty, to, but that means he's got to defeat the source of it all, which is Satan himself. And so what does Satan do? Here he is again. And he uses the same old tricks. But he looks at, looks at Jesus, who is fully human, walking in a broken world, suffering, and he tries to get him to, he tries to get him to reject his humanity. He, he starts saying, hey, just, just do a miracle. Just turn that bread and just turn that bread into, uh, I mean, turn that stone into bread. See, he's trying to get him to not live as fully human. He's trying to get him to cheat. He's trying to get him to use resources that Adam didn't have and that you and I don't have to get himself out of a hard situation. He's trying to get him to not live as a dependent human, trusting in the Father by faith. But he won't do it. Jesus refuses to use any resource that you and I don't have. He lives by the Spirit and by his Father's Word. And every time that Satan says, oh, come on, you don't have to suffer. Just cheat. Just cheat a little bit. You don't have to be vulnerable to pain. You don't have to be vulnerable to loneliness, to hunger. Just get yourself out of the situation. Jesus refuses and he obeys fully as a human. And this temptation comes around again. 
if you remember this, Jesus starts explaining that he's got to uh, die to his disciples. And Peter looks at him and says, no, 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 you don't need to die. You know what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. It's the same temptation. You don't, have, you don't have to suffer, Jesus. And Jesus says, I do. And so then at the end of, the, at the end of this temptation, he resists by, by trusting his father, by obeying. Did you see this? It was strange. It said angels show up and minister to him. So weak has he become. So human is he that he's literally at the, at, at, at exhausted that angels come and minister. I don't know what that means. But I do know this. It's not the only time that angels show up. Because the night before Jesus is going to be uh, crucified, he's out in a garden. And he's getting closer to the place that he's going to really suffer as he wears our sin. And, he, and, he, and he's getting somehow this picture of what's coming. And he starts sweating drops of blood. And he says, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. Because, he is the, because he's the second Adam, because he's pure and he's godly. Hear me on this. He cannot want to be separated from his father. So he can't want this. Of course he flinches from it. And in the greatest act of obedience, he submits himself to more suffering. And it says the angels have to minister to him. They have to strengthen him. So weak is he. But he takes the cup. He refuses to cheat. And he, and he sweats drop of blood and he, and he takes the cup of suffering on the cross, not for his sin, but for ours. And on the cross, the obedience that led to death, he succeeds where Adam's failed. Adam had a command about a tree and he failed. Jesus has command about a tree and he succeeds. And he uses no resource that was unavailable to Adam nor to me or you. He obeys by the power of the Spirit and trust of God's Word. And Adam gave to Satan enslavement of this world. But you realize Jesus isn't interested in making a deal with the devil. He's interested in conquering him. And he does it through his sacrificial death on a cross in our place and his resurrection. He takes us on a cross and defeats Satan for us. So I'll end with this. When I was in college, it was uh, back actually Ole Miss had a pretty good string of uh, uh, basketball seasons. And uh, this was the year, I believe, that we actually went to the Sweet 16. And so in those days, uh, actually, if you wanted to get on the front row of a uh, basketball game, you had to show up like two and a half hours early. So me and my friends uh, uh, had nothing better to do. So that's what we always did. And we were taking on, I believe it was Florida. I think they were top 10. And uh, so we were on the front row. And with about two and a half minutes left, it was coming, it was coming obvious like we were actually going to win this. And so when it looked like we were going to win, at least this is what they were called in my day, these people called Cobra Security, like appeared out of nowhere out of these doors. They were these big, like honking kind of, you know, guys, just hulk. And they, they come, they'd stand in front of the student section like this, kind of sending this message that if you try to, if you try to storm the court, uh, you're going to have to deal with us. So me and my like, you know, lanky, like uh, friends are like, ah, are we going to do this? We're like, yeah, we're not going to try this. This is going to go bad for us. And so, you know, we're just cheering. <clears throat> With about 30 seconds left, all of a sudden this person appears at the front who had come down from the, uh, his name was Charles Stackhouse. Charles Stackhouse was about a 6'3", 250-pound fullback. He went on to play for the New York Giants for a few years. So he's now standing next to me, and uh, he starts bouncing up and down, and he starts saying, we're, we're going to rush the court, we're going to rush the court. He's like, he goes, follow me to the promised land. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, all right. And so sure enough, when that buzzer went off, 
Stackhouse took off in a full sprint, and I watched the COVID. I've never seen it do this. They just went. <laughs> and he went, and we just all filed in behind him and got on the court. Because all of a sudden, they, met, they looked and they realized, I don't want to take this guy on. And he, he cleared the path for us. In a funny way, that is actually what Jesus does. Because the first and main step in facing the devil and temptation is to see that Jesus Christ has already defeated him. When he went to a cross in your place, when he obeyed fully in your place, when he died the death we should have died, he did it. And so facing, the message of the Bible is not you have to do it, it's that Jesus did it for you. So if you're in him, you are secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Jesus has won the victory. And so feast on that. And now you have the same resources that Jesus has. You have the spirit in you and you have his word. Go back to those things. And so, and so when you hear the temptation that God's not going to look out for you tomorrow, so you've got to take it into your own hands, uh, fix your suffering, you can't really trust him, you've got to hear, you've got to look at Jesus and realize he took on the devil. He's looking out for me. I might not can explain all the bad things that are going on in my life, but it can't be because I'm separated from him. When you hear forces, voices say, look at you, you can't be God's child, you're suffering. You can look at the cross and realize somehow there's fellowship with Christ through my suffering. Somehow I'm coming to know him better through this, not apart from it. And Jesus knows what it's like to suffer as a human. I can be near him in this, but it will not separate me from him. I can keep trusting him. So how you stand against the Satan is by the power of the Spirit, through his word, looking away from yourself to Jesus. Because it's by faith, not by works, that you're in Christ. And when you, when you look to Christ, you realize the Father says, you are my beloved and who am I'm well pleased. That's the position that you fight from, a place of security. Let that voice drown out the accusations and temptations of Satan. There is a hero who has overcome the evil one and one day will put him away from ever. The evil one wants to destroy you, but Jesus has overcome. Do you want that? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the hero of this world. And there is, a, there is an enemy, and his name is Satan, and death, and all this sin. And uh, in our best days, we, we actually have to admit we are not, we are helpless in and of ourselves to defeat those things. Lord, we thank you for coming into this world, for being the hero that uh, refused to make yourself immune to pain and suffering, but took it on yourself to go to the cross so that we could be yours. So do you enable us this morning to see through the lies of Satan, to look at God's promises, to see that you are our righteousness. There is no one like you. And so would you enable us to stand, to stand in Christ this morning and receive that joy. In your son's name I pray. Amen.